0: Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology, a forum, I guess, where great rheumatologists like us go over all the good things in rheumatology every week. Seems like we've been doing this a lot in the last few months. This is going to be our final one of the summer, uh, and we're going to have a really good program. This is an excerpted program from uh, Room Now Live 2022, held in March of this year. Um, in this particular session, we're going to hear about what dermatologists think, rheumatologists need to know. So we have three dermatologists that are going to lecture us. Before I get into the particulars of all of that, I want to uh, thank and acknowledge Janssen Pharmaceuticals for sponsoring this pod, this session, uh, and sponsoring Room Now Live and allows us to bring this content to you. As you know, you'll be able to watch this program here tonight, but you can also watch this recorded or listen to it recorded in its entirety or you can listen to the individual lectures, which will also be made available on the Room Now website and on our YouTube channel. I want to remind you that this is being broadcast to you on the webinar, if you signed up for the webinar, but is also being simulcasted, live streamed to LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channels. So today on the program, we have Dr. Bruce Strober from New York, Dr. Kenneth Gordon from uh, Wisconsin, and Joe Marola, a rheumatologist and dermatologist. All The other two guys are dermatologists. Joe is a combined room derm, uh, and Joe's from Boston, and they're going to each be talking about management. Uh, We're going to start off the program. We're going to run these together. It's about 50-51 minutes, Uh, and uh, Dr. Strober from New York, a leader in clinical trials in uh, dermatology and psoriasis drug development, is going to talk to you about the latest data that we've seen the latest drugs and the head-to-head studies that we've seen, really good data. Ken Gordon's got a really practical session where he's going to talk about things that you need to know when seeing these cases with dermatologic manifestations. And Joe Moreau is going to talk about the rheumatologist approach and also the combined rheumatology-dermatology clinics that he's been running and what um, that may uh, offer as an advantage. So we'll take this down We'll get started. Um, I'll take over the um, the share screen. okay. Here we go.
1: Okay, we did this before. I did this last week.
0: I had a hard time finding this on my uh, my desktop, and it's in my. Sorry, folks, give me a moment. All right, finally here. They say it would never happen, and in fact, it has happened. Okay. We're gonna start with Bruce Strober, as, uh, as I said, Bruce is originally from New York, but he's at now the clinical professor of dermatology, at Yale um, University in Connecticut. And Bruce is going to talk to us about advanced
2: two, they had to go to a zero. Now you can see here these efficacy data are modest. Only one in five patients achieved the benchmark. But a Premolast is a modest efficacy drug. So no surprises here. And not surprisingly, the same tolerability issues arose in the study regarding headache, nausea, and diarrhea in about one in every five patients for each of those adverse events. Now a different drug that's oral, yet uh, possibly going to go into the same space is Ducravacitinib. It's a drug that's not yet approved by the FDA for any indication. It's a specific tic 2 inhibitor by binding the allosteric domain of tic 2 not shared by the other three members of the JAK kinase family, JAK1, 2, and 3. More specifically, Ducravacitinib binds the regulatory domain of tic 2 that isn't shared in the Jack 1 through three uh, members of the family so it's oral it's once daily highly selective hundred-fold or more greater selectivity for tick 2 than Jack 1 and three 2,000 fold greater selectivity for tick 2 versus Jack 2 and it specifically inhibits cytokine signaling that mediates il 12 IL 23 in type 1 interferon. Particularly interesting is the 1223 link. Uh, those two cytokines we know from past biologics experience, highly relevant for psoriasis pathogenesis. If you inhibit those cytokines, you get efficacy in psoriasis. Um, and here you see the regulatory domain binding is allosteric, subsequently inhibiting the activities of the catalytic domain so that TIC2 is unable to function. The efficacy data are generated by two parallel studies: Poetic SO1, Poetic SO2. Each is a identical version of the other, head-to-head with a premolast. And a premolast in the light blue, placebo in the gray, and you can see the purple line is your tic two inhibitor, Ducravacitinib. Modest efficacy for a premolast as usual, pretty respectable efficacy for Ducravacitinib. or 54% at the primary endpoint week 16, posi-75. And if you carry these patients out to week 24, you even see a bit more efficacy. Probably safe to say two-thirds of patients over the course of six months get the posi-75. I would say that's efficacy comparable to what you see for adalimumab and ustekinumab, Humira, Stelara. Adverse events, well, Ducravacitinib uh, did not have the tolerability adverse events seen with apremolast. As you can see in this slide, headache, diarrhea, nausea highlighted were low in the Ducravacitinib arm and comparable to placebo, whereas you see about a quarter of the patients on the apremolast arm seeing headache, diarrhea, and nausea. A, a little bit more nasopharyngitis in the Ducravacitinib arm, um, but no differences in AEs leading to discontinuation or serious AEs. These are some adverse events of interest, particularly those that you might see in patients receiving JAK kinase inhibitors, serious infections, zoster, arterial thromboembolism, deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and then MACE. And in every instance, you can see the performs quite comparably to either placebo or a premolast. And we know a premolast isn't associated with any of these real adverse events. And so if Ducrabacitinib in this study of a large number of patients is similar, we have a good sense that issues related to jack kinase inhibition are not gravitating towards Ducrabacitinib. Laboratory monitoring, similarly, because of the TIC2 specificity, it appears that laboratory monitoring that you might think necessary for a JAK kinase inhibitor isn't necessary for Ducrabacitinib. For example, no need to measure the CBC to my eye because there's no movement in lymphocyte, neutrophil, and platelet counts. No anemia uh, comparable to a premolast as shown here in this table. Similarly with cholesterol, no issues with cholesterol, minimal issues with triglycerides, um, almost the same as placebo. CPK is a little elevated in some patients, but again, not different from placebo, and no issues on renal function or AST-ALT. So it might be the is a type of drug that is unique in its MOA, different from jak kinase inhibition, not having some of the adverse events we associate with jak kinase inhibition, and not necessitating blood test monitoring typically needed for your classical JAK kinase inhibitors. Now, what about the JAK inhibitors for psoriasis? We don't have an approved one. We only can use them because they're approved for psoriatic arthritis, and that would be tofacitinib and upatocitinib. or they're approved for atopic dermatitis, and that would be upadacitinib and abrocitinib, which is a drug unique to dermatology now, uh, manufactured by Pfizer. Tofacitinib I have found is very effective for patients with palmoplantar psoriasis. And we published this in the journal Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis. Um, Many cases, I have over 25 patients who basically all show this behavior. If you take someone with palmoplantar psoriasis and you give them a couple months of standard dose tofacitinib, you nearly clear them or clear them in every instance. Baseline, this is two months later, baseline, Month one, month two, fully clear. This patient is now a year out, still clear. Very severe patient brought to almost clear after two months. Um, again, I have countless patients who demonstrate this behavior. Um, and I think this means Jack inhibition, at least in the manner by which tofacitinib does it is a really uniquely effective approach to palmoplantar psoriasis that we don't see with our high, potent, high potency biologic therapies. They don't do this as frequently. Um, there's something unique to JAK kinase inhibition that leads to this outcome. And the question remains, will upadacitinib, which is now approved for psoriatic arthritis, work as well or better? Well, we'll find out soon. I'm gonna start using upadacitinib exclusively for these patients moving away from tofacitinib and just see how my first 10 patients do. IL-17A pathway inhibitors, it's well known in rheumatology. They're great for psoriatic arthritis, and we also know they're great for psoriasis. Now they're approved in pediatric populations down to the age of six. That's the upshot of this part of the presentation. Ixekizumab very effective at the POSI-9100 level, actually more so than it is in adults, down to the age of six, these are the kids. This is Secukinumab. And I highlight its efficacy at posi-90, really impressive 73% of patients at the 300 milligram dose, hitting posi-90 at week 12 and out week 52, a similar number of patients. And the blue line is etanercept, and the blue histograms are etanercept. There's really no comparison. Etanercept has been a gold standard drug for pediatric psoriasis for many years. Now we can move to IL-17A inhibitors as long as patients don't have a history of inflammatory bowel disease, and that would be the major issue. I will say as an aside, my preferential drug for pediatric psoriasis remains ustekinumab, because no risk for IBD, very easy dosing at every 12 weeks, and really quiet safety. Binikizumab is a drug that blocks IL-17A and F, so it's a unique MOA. Uh, blocking IL-17F, brings into play another isoform of IL-17 that is found in high levels in patients with psoriasis, particularly in their plaques. Um, So it is believed that IL-17 inhibition should encompass not only A, but F, to get the full range and potential of IL-17 pathway inhibition. Vimicizumab is not yet approved for psoriasis in the United States. That approval is nearly going to occur. It might even occur or have occurred by the time you hear this talk. In a nutshell, the efficacy of demikizumab in psoriasis, in my opinion, is unmatched. 91% of patients get to 90, all right, for reference, Uh, Rizinkizumab it's about 75 percent of patients at that level. So 91 percent and at week 52 a similar amount of patients are still at that metric. Um, So you're going to get 90 percent at posi 90 you're going to get 70 percent at posi 100. You're going to tell a patient there's a 70 percent chance you'll be fully clear by week 16. So a very rapidly acting drug as well. Again probably the most potent and rapidly acting medication. Uh, The one downside is candidal infections occur in approximately 10 to 20% of patients, depending on the dose used. There'll be a Q8 week maintenance dose and a Q4 week maintenance dose after initial 16 weeks of Q4 weeks. The Q8 week dose will give you fewer candidal infections than the Q4 week dose. And just for perspective, the other IL-17 pathway inhibitors, such as secukinumab, exekizumab, and brodalumab, have much lower candidal rates. Uh, somewhere between 2 and 5% of patients experience uh, candidal infection while on these drugs. But the bimikizumab, again, 10 to 18%, depending on study. So we're all going to have to be, quote unquote, candidologists to take care of patients on bimikizumab. I predict that most of these patients have mild oral candidiasis, which is easily treatable, and by far, the majority of patients didn't come out of the studies when they had candidal infection. So it might be a minor issue that's easily managed. With regard to this long-term safety of biologics, and particularly IL-17A inhibitors in psoriasis, I wanna point out serious infection rates. You can see all three of the IL-17s currently approved gravitate to about 1.3, 1.4 events per hundred patient years and that's in line with the solar registry range range that's a real world registry of 12,000 patients with moderate to serious psoriasis that yellow bar is the range of serious infections and you can see il 17s fall within the real world range when they're in their clinical trials and actually they're very comparable to il-23 inhibitors so low serious infection rates in il-17 inhibitors so to summarize the IL-17s, we, we see drugs with rapid response, robust efficacy, more frequent dosing than IL-23 inhibitors. Occasionally, they're underdosed at, week, at every four weeks, I would say. Comparable efficacy at adalimumab to Adalibab for psoriatic arthritis. We know they in- inhibit radiographic progression with good efficacy for axial disease. Low signaling, Low signal for malignancy and serious infections. Best efficacy for nail psoriasis, no laboratory monitoring. Candidiasis, less than 5% for the IL-17 inhibitors, higher for the IL-17 AF blocker. You don't want to use them in IBD, of course, and they work really well for pediatric psoriasis. They join the to and to with approval in that group of patients. Now, IL-23 inhibitors, we have three. There's tildrakizumab, which is our weakest. IL-23 inhibitor. I say that because only two out of three patients get the posi-75 at week 12, maybe a few more at week 28. And uh, week 28, posi-90, about 50%, I would say, and 25% at posi-100. These are low numbers for the IL-23s. For caselcumab, now you're seeing posi-75 at the 90% range, and you can see the plum-colored line is Humira, adalimumab as a comparator, out a year, you're holding that efficacy pretty well. That's a non-responder imputation. Posi 90, three out of four at Posi 90 for Guselkumab, and Posi 100, about half the patients on Guselkumab. So half the patients on Guselkumab cleared at a year out, um, and that's twice the number of patients you saw with Tildrakizumab at that metric. Risenkizumab, a little more effective, I think, than Guselkumab, just a slight, margin, three out of four, posi 90, week 16, four out of five, posi 90, week 52. And by the way, it's about 60% posi 100 at week 52. Um, and dosing is less frequent for risankizumab Everyone should know risankizumab and guselkumab because they're now approved for active psoriatic arthritis in adults. Um, so these are drugs you'll get to know. And similarly, they're quiet on the serious infection level in range with Solar, per 100 patient years serious infections malignancy low rates 0.5 per 100 patient years and in range with the real world solar registry so um, fairly good comfort with regard to serious infections and malignancies in people either on IL-17 inhibitors or IL-23 blockers so to conclude the IL-23 inhibitors robust long lasting skin efficacy high POSI 90 and 100 levels week 16 and onward. Um, More than 50% of the patients on Rizinkizumab, Busalcumab are POSI 100 at week 52, with Rizinkizumab slightly more efficacious and a less frequent dosing interval. But both are very nice in terms of their two to two, three month dosing interval, very infrequent and probably tolerant of lazy dosing where some misdoses don't really have great consequence on efficacy. They're sneaky in their rapidity of response. They're not slow drugs. They're not as fast as say Ixakizumab, um, but they're comparably as fast as secukinumab. You will see at four weeks out, more than half the skin is cleared. And I told you about the dosing laziness. They have efficacy for psoriatic arthritis. I see this very practically in the clinic. Patients do see signs and symptom improvement with gusalkumab and kizumab and the approvals are therefore justified um, and they seem to have a tnf level efficacy for dactylitis and enthesitis um, maybe though they don't stack up on the radiographic progression issue so there i would say more severely affected psoriasis patients should be biased towards tnf blockers and il-17 inhibitors but a good choice for the more mild PSA patient that we commonly see in dermatology. No laboratory monitoring, low signal for malignancy, no candidiasis signal for these drugs, and finally, no IBD concerns. So a little less concern up front. We don't have to screen for IBD. We don't have to worry about candidiasis. Um, Pretty quiet mechanism of action, IL-23 inhibition. So I end here with a current treatment paradigm
3: Worked with at Northwestern for a long, long time. Um, and I had to get this, and we wrote this on the back of a napkin. Uh, so it was like the Laffer curve for those people who remember the Reagan, Reagan administration. And it turned out to be the silliest, most common sense figure I've ever seen. But as we have many, many new treatments going on, I actually think it's somewhat relevant now where it wasn't probably in 2006. So we think of it as the four quadrant model. But all it's doing is saying, what are the priorities of the patient that are in, that's in front of you to get it better? Because that's going to impact your selection of therapy. So quadrant ones, when you have limited psoriasis, limited arthritis, probably something that's not progressive in arthritis, can you use NSAIDs, can you use topicals, can you use methotrexate. Methotrexate is a pretty weak drug in psoriasis um, and is uh, modestly effective in psoriatic arthritis. But you can do things that you have time, you're not in a rush. Quadrant two is extensive psoriasis and mild arthritis. Those are the people who show up in the dermatology office primarily. And those are the folks who you have to think, what's gonna get their skin better? Because while we wanna treat their joints as well, that's not the priority moving forward. Limited psoriasis and severe arthritis, the other way around. Maybe you wanna use preferentially an anti-TNF, which isn't quite as good as some of the newer agents in treating uh, psoriasis, but they highly effective for psoriatic arthritis. And then finally, the extensive psoriasis and severe arthritis, you really need to hit on something that's gonna hit both of them very hard. You have to think about what the patient in front of you, what their priority is, and what is the thing that needs to be treated most quickly. So we're gonna go through a couple cases that I think will hopefully um, bring out some of the major issues uh, that we see when we're treating patients with psoriasis. So this is a 28-year-old woman who walks into the office. Um, I think that most people can make the diagnosis of psoriasis from across the room, uh, and most people can make the diagnosis of psoriasis across the room. Uh, But she clearly has greater than 10% body surface area. I, I think that's pretty obvious from the picture. Now, she's a nurse. She immigrated from Romania about three years prior to my first seeing her. She has severe skin disease. No doubt. But she's had it since she's age 12. So she's had it for about 16 years already. Uh, she has joint swelling and pain and stiffness since age 18. So the psoriasis came beforehand. Um, but it's really much localized joint pain, few fingers and toes. Um, sometimes she's swollen, sometimes she's not. We can't always tell if the swelling is related to the inflammation in her extremities uh, from the psoriasis or actually within the joint space. Um, and it's, uh, the stiffness lasts for an hour, hour and a half. It varies a little bit. She's a nurse, and she's significant difficulty finding work due to her cutaneous disease. Her fingers aren't impacting her ability to work, but her skin is preventing her from getting a job. And there's actually quite a bit of evidence that unemployment and underemployment is a significant, um, there's a significant impact of psoriasis and particularly severe psoriasis on employment status. So I would put her in quadrant two, right? She has skin predominant disease, Early joint disease, but that's not what's driving her. She needs to get better quickly. So a more significant issue related to quality of life, potential comorbid disease is due to her skin. And as I said, I consider employment issues comorbid disease as well. Topical therapy, as uh, Dr. Strober just said, and phototherapy just ain't gonna work. You guys might have colleagues who are in dermatology will say, oh, I always have to go through topicals first. If you have this much body surface area, it is completely absurd to try topicals before you try systemic therapy. And in fact, there is clearly a relationship with that 10% number is that effectiveness of topical therapy goes way down at that 10% number. So this is a patient who needs internal medicine, his systemic therapy, But then how do you choose in that zoo of biologics and orals what is the best treatment for her? She has some pretty good evidence for joint disease so you don't want to ignore it. And so we should determine determine therapy based on what's best for her joints. She has a chronic disease and so does speed matter in this? And I think that's an important question for everyone in treating uh, psoriasis. Well, there's a guy named Mark Lebel, who many of you know, who used to be the, the chair at Mount Sinai in New York, uh, who would always tell about how speed is centrally important for all his patients because he has politicians, he has actors, he has all these really important people who have to get better really quickly. So speed is something he really looks for for a medication. Not a big issue for me in Milwaukee, right? Um, And so you have to think about that patient in front of you and what's really driving them to get better. As Dr. Strober just said a few moments ago, um, some drugs are a little faster than others, but what we have today is so much faster than we had 10, 15 years ago. It's almost silly to even consider some of it sometimes unless it's a really emergent thing. And and the most who knows what the most emergent uh, issue for getting someone better as quickly as possible for um, psoriasis is? Anyone have a guess? Weddings. weddings, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. I have treated more patients on cyclosporin without that much psoriasis for weddings for my entire career. Um, and then your local dermatologist really only uses oral medication and a premolas, which is not an unusual situation and does not prescribe biologics. Is that an okay place to start? And I think that's another question you have to ask for the patients. First of all, I just want to put out psoriasis uh, methotrexate data, and I, I'm going a little off topic here, but I think a lot of rheumatologists don't know the methotrexate data for psoriasis, so I just want out there. This is the best trial of methotrexate called the METOP study. It was published a number of years ago as sub-Q methotrexate, actually aggressively dosed with 17.5 milligrams to start, sub-Q. Um, and if you look at it, the posi-75 result, uh, result comes out to be about 40 or 45%. If you think about that in the context of what we're talking about with the newer biologic agents, um, it's pretty poopy, okay? It's better than a uh, it's better than acetretin, but it's not a particularly uh, highly efficacious nor speedy treatment for psoriasis. So I'm gonna put it out there, I'm not gonna talk a lot about methotrexate, but I just want everyone to have some sense of where methotrexate fits in terms of the, in terms of the efficacy um, related to some of the agents we're gonna talk about soon. So I like to think about things as classes. Instead of trying to think about each individual drug, I think in terms of big picture. And that's how I'm trying to decide what's best for the patient. So when we say, okay, you need systemic therapy, I say you have oral medicines, you have biologics, and let's think about the classes of medications. And do certain classes work better than others? And the answer is, yeah. But are the differences really all that significant? In some cases they are, but if you look at um, this is a network meta-analysis, and assuming all the difficulties in doing that kind of analysis, I just want to point out that you see to have a couple groups that seem to have different levels of efficacy, and they almost break out themselves. So you have the first three or four sort of risinkizumab, brudalumab, guselkumab, and ixikizumab being significantly higher effectiveness. Then you sort of a middle range between secukinumab, ustekinumab, acertalizumab, adalibumab, and then you get to things that are particularly uh, less efficacious, including etanerceptin, methotrexate in there to, as well, apremilast, um, and placebo tends not to work very well, thank you very much. Um, and so what you see is you have classes in how these work. Now sometimes there's crossings, so exocizumab being an anti-IL-17, and um being an anti-IL-23, both fit into that highly effective popular group. So you have certain groups that tend to be high, highly effective and then sort of modest effective. What does the POSI 75 or POSI 90 mean? It's a positive predictive value. What's the likelihood of that patient going to get better as the first shot agent, right? So think about ACR 20 or ACR 50, it's the same thing. It's what is the predictability of this medication going to be? And the patient I showed you just a second ago, that predictability is really important because she's really got a ton of disease and she can't get work. So you want something in that very high predictable um, group. This is looking at quality of life, which says basically the same thing. It's a number needed to treat analysis. But you see that in the top performing drugs, there's not all that much difference. So if you're just looking at predictability, you're not gonna see a massive difference between say rizinkizumab, which a lot of people think is the highest efficacy drug, and Ixacizumab and guselkumab they're all in the same ballpark. And that comes out even clearer when you see head-to-head trials. Now head-to-head trials are obviously designed by the people who are sponsoring the trial, right? So you're gonna have things that are gonna be uh, very effective. So if you look first to the this figure on the right, which is the Eclipse trial, which was Guselkumab versus Sacicinumab, you see early on, there's really no difference between those two groups, and there's a non-inferiority analysis that's done where they're pretty similar. But you can see that the anti-IL-17 might work a little faster, but it's still pretty quick. The primary endpoint that is down a year um, going down, it's probably uh, guselkimab did win statistically, and that actually is a pretty significant difference, um, but it's not tremendous. There's no reason you couldn't start looking at secukinumab as a drug of choice. Uh, Ixora is Ixacizumab, again, the speed favoring the anti-IL-17, but um, overall efficacy, and by week 24, this becomes pretty even. So what did we do thinking of all these factors? Psoriasis predominant over psoriatic arthritis, needs to get better quickly, and um, is someone who really needs therapy because of her overall health. So she's skin predominant, so we need to send something that is predictably, predictably high level effect, effectiveness. We go directly to the anti-IL-17s and anti-IL-23s. Speed is important, she needs to get better, she can't get work. Anti-IL-17 has a marginal benefit, though not overwhelming advantage. Likely some peripheral psoriatic arthritis. Anti-IL-17 is probably a bit better, I think we all have a sense of that, but IL-23 is possible. So it looks to me that there are enough things favoring going with an anti-IL-17 that that's where we went. And we went for Ixukizumab for her. And she got better. She was down. I, I have this weird habit of forgetting to take pictures of people when they're doing well. I only take pictures when they're really bad. And so I don't have a follow-up picture, and I apologize for that. Uh, but in, in actuality, she did. she did quite well. She actually became employed at the hospital I worked at. Um, and um, was uh, quite happy and has remained on Ixacizumab now for a few years and has stayed stable. So again, the skin driving it, the joints being a lesser concern, speed being a lesser concern, but still important enough that that's where we choose to go to the drug that favors those two elements. Make sense to everyone? Let's go to the next case. This is a 23-year-old woman. This woman and I, uh, 32 year woman, excuse me. Uh, this woman and I have had a long uh, history of taking care of her. She, I'll, I'll tell you a really funny story. So my wife's a gastroenterologist. And uh, when she became pregnant, she lived way out in the suburbs. Um, she had a horrible pustular flare of her psoriasis. And she walked into my wife's office for hyperemesis. And um, she had a horrible pustular flare of her psoriasis as well. And my wife goes, you really need to see a dermatologist. She goes, yeah, my dermatologist. I called and I couldn't get in. My, she had no idea that my wife and I had the same last name that we were related in any way. And so my wife calls up, can you take care of this woman who's trying to get through to, your, to an office, I can't get into that horrible dermatologist? So yeah, it's my patient here. Thank you very much. Um, but she's a really nice woman and has a long history of work with it. So this is when we first started seeing her uh, when she was 23 and it essentially looked about the same as she did now. Uh, essentially, she presented initially to rheumatology um, for multiple tender and swollen joints in her early 20s. She was in college and she, she stopped out of college for about a year because she just had horrible joint disease and she was having a hard time writing, um, things of that sort um, and so, with her being at a young age, um, and um, with her sense that um, she was sexually active, things of that sort, she wanted to get started on Cerdalizumab, the decision was started on um every other week uh, because of the concern of pre- pregnancy in the future, um, and had a great response, her joints did really well. But her skin pretty much looked at like what we showed those leg lesions right now, which was better than she was at baseline, but still quite a bit active, and for a young person, still very concerning. So what do you do in a patient where you, she has psoriatic arthritis, it's under control? But her skin then becomes the issue. So there's no question her joints were the predominant issue to begin with. But that's now changed because her joints have gotten under control. Because it's one of those times that the rheumatologist was smarter than the dermatologist, right? So what do you do? Do you add topicals to phototherapy? Do you change the dose of Cirtilizumab? Do you add methotrexate? Or do you change the biologic completely? So let's go through our thinking about her. The first thing is, and, and I like to be a kind of a common sense kind of guy, of course you add a topical. Going to the dermatologist's office is similar to going to a bagel shop. You come out with a schmear, right? There's a well-known dermatologist named uh, Jerry Bagel who once was in the back of the room when I made that joke and yelled, that resembles me. Um, But the fact is, it is the easiest thing to think about. Now, now, topicals can be pretty complex, because you all have said, okay, let me just try giving you the one topical I might remember, which is triamcinolone, because I can't keep all these things in my mind, or, or fluocinonide, or whichever one it is, and they'll say the pharmacist can only be used for two weeks, you can't be used on pretty much any part of the body because it's too strong, what do I do? Turns out topical therapies aren't, aren't so difficult. Topical steroids are, are highly effective. Um, you have to be concerned about the face, the underarms, the groin area, um, and that's about it. Um, for thinking and, and use is, you know, most people don't use it enough because it's so hard to be comp- adherent to the therapies to get actually any side effects of it. If someone has over 80% of the body surface area, you hope they're not using it all over their entire body as well. Um, there are going to be, a, as uh, Bruce pointed out, a couple new uh, topicals over the next six months to a year. One's called refumilast and one's called um, Topinarov which uh, actually might take the question of what parts of your body you can't use topical steroids on, might take that out of the question, uh, which might be a a huge boon for ability for anyone to prescribe topical therapies. But the point is, of course you use a topical therapy. And she has thick skin on her legs, uh, so you can use anything that's pretty potent. So we gave her topical corticosteroid, gave her fluosinonide, which is pretty potent, and said go ahead and use it until you get better. it's really interesting how little information we have about top, adding topicals to biologics. Um, there really has only been one good study, and that said that actually adding topicals to a bio, to adalibumab made it worse. Um, We've sort of thrown that one out. We're not paying attention to it, uh, but probably didn't add a whole heck of a lot. Um, and you can use the mild potency or high potency. Um, something a little stronger is absolutely fine. But what about the dose of the certilizumab? And this is looking at CYMPOSI-1, which was a trial uh, of uh, certilizumab, and it's pretty clear that 400 milligrams every other week chronically works better than 200 milligrams every other week for sertilizumab. So the question is, in a young woman who is happy to be on certilizumab because of other issues and her joints are doing great, can you change the dose of the medication? And the answer is, yeah. And the other thing is, can you change? So we don't have certolizumab comparators, but we do have uh, comparators with Adalibumab. And you can actually change the, uh, from a high-functioning anti-TNF agent, not as good as some of the more modern agents, and go to uh, a anti-IL-23, like guselkumab and get a high level of efficacy. So actually that crossover, patients do quite well. And that's been now demonstrated with a number of agents. So um, there's very good data um, with uh, bimikizumab when it becomes available, with crossover from adalibumab, ustigenumab, or even secukinumab as well. And so there are, the possibility of changing is also quite reasonable. So what do we do? Well, we, as I said, we started the Fluicin and I Cream. And you know what? As a young woman, the likelihood of a young woman uh, using her creams as prescribed is just, and, and this is even worse for young men, by the way, having boys, uh, well, men now her age as my children, uh, yeah, they don't use it, okay? The, the chance is almost zero. She couldn't come in for phototherapy, and she lived in an apartment, so she couldn't have a home UVB unit. I actually. Have, through COVID have used a lot of home UVB. We write a prescription and someone gets a unit at home, they don't have to come in, they feel very comfortable. We've used it a ton. But the first question you have to ask before doing that is does the patient live in a house or does the patient live in an apartment? Because the unit's about that wide and a bit taller than me, and putting it in a house is fine. You put it in the basement, it's not an issue. Putting it in an apartment and then move around, theoretically, as a lot of young people do, it it don't work very well. So um, phototherapy was really not an option for her. Uh, But since her joints were doing so well, and there was a reason to start the Sertilizumab in the first place, we decided to increase the dose of the Sertilizumab to 400 milligrams every other week. And she improved by about 75%. Was she completely clear the answer was no, but she felt good enough that that was okay, I didn't have to push the envelope any farther. Um, and so the last few spots we actually brought her in, we injected a little interlesional Triumph into the remaining spots, um, and it pretty much cleared it up and she stayed clear. In other words, we were able to just use the existing things and a little adjuvant to make her better so we didn't have to go and to make big changes in the class of medication. So what are my takeaways uh, from this. The main challenge to rheumatologists are the scenarios where the skin is the predominant issue, in my mind, or when the skin is not completely clear when the joints are doing well. And I think that's a challenge that all of us have faced frequently within our practices. For initial therapy, choosing based on skin as well as joint response is critical for the patient. The most recent biologics, that is the anti-IL-17s and anti-IL-23s, have pretty large advantages over the older biologics and oral therapies. Systemic therapies, even within classes, can behave differently. So as, as Dr. Strober mentioned, Risen Kizumab and Tilder Kizumab don't behave exactly the same way. Uh, Risen Kizumam may be much more highly effective. And they behave differently in the skin, and dosing may be distinct between the treatment of skin and joint disease. And that's one of the questions and one of my takeaways that I say in my psoriasis psoriatic arthritis clinic that I've been saying for a year.
1: Alright, folks. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I mean, it's a little tough after those two talks. I mean, what's left to say? I'm, I'm partly thinking I just open it up for questions and we end now. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> it's all been covered. Uh, so a couple of disclosures and then I'll go through this. So first of all, you know, I, I, I love podium talks. I'm not sure if any of you can see me over the podium. Uh, I'll wave every once in a while so you, so you know I'm still here. Um, So I'll try to cover things a little bit different. There's gonna be some overlap. Uh, This is me, Uh, I am in Boston. Uh, I'm a dermatologist and a rheumatologist at the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, I checked the weather. Normally there's a big disparity. Today it's about the same. It's like in the 50s and gray. So yeah, more or or less the same, but normally it's uh, delightful to escape to warmer weather uh, and these are my disclosures. <clears throat> so I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, the co-management piece and I wanna start first with gaps. Uh, a little bit more sort of the rheumatology facing gaps and I think you've heard this, some of this will be reinforcing to what my colleagues have already said but I wanna take a bit of a rheumatology angle on this and unfortunately, across the breadth of psoriatic disease if you like that term, um, <clears throat> You know, we're siloed in our care, right? We have Ken doing uh, psoriasis care as a dermatologist, uh, you know, from a skin perspective. We're obviously sitting in the rheumatology world, uh, worried about joints and the domains of disease around uh, around psoriatic arthritis. We had that lecture from Philip uh, yesterday about axial disease, thinking about all the different components there. There's heterogeneity, you know, even within these two uh, distinct areas. Uh, and then we have cardiovascular comorbidities, and you know the primary care and the cardiologist. There we have other conditions to consider, and the breadth of comorbidities, and we'll talk about that as well. So there are many gaps, right? And there's gaps in awareness. There's educational gaps uh, between us as specialists, and um, there's access issues that came up a moment ago, and of course time and resources, right? Um, really keep the uh, the gaps uh, open here between. Uh, between these areas and, and ultimately harm the patient from getting uh, complete disease control. And here we are building bridges, right? So Room Now Live is filling some of the educational gap there. But I wanna focus a little bit on interdisciplinary care models, on research and innovation in this area, and how we start to think about closing uh, these gaps a little bit more. Uh, you may notice the first author on this article, as they say where I come from, Addy, uh, is listed there, uh, and this is, this is an important one. I wanna use this to frame some of our discussion because uh, what this essentially shows is that in order to maximize quality of life for our patients with psoriatic disease, one has to, maybe not surprisingly, but I'll, I'll pick it apart a little bit, uh, not only control their joint disease or maximize or optimize their joint disease, but also their skin. Uh, And you know, that's not just the really bad patients that we saw a moment ago in the photos. It's also patients with 3% body surface area and more. So it still does matter uh, very much. And you know, I I won't, uh, again in a moment, I will uh, unfortunately show one of the treat to target uh, slides, but I will give a caveat. I promise I will, there's a caveat when when I get to that. Uh, But but do remember this, because it really does matter to patients and most patients. Is it different for my my 70-year-old male VA patient with 3% body surface area than it is my 17-year-old female patient in the office? Possibly, I don't want to draw uh, or over extrapolate there because obviously it's a shared decision-making discussion, but the point is the skin still matters. So what are some of the rheumatologist gaps? Uh, you know, I think although there is the classic plaque psoriasis patient that we saw again in Ken's presentation, there is often a differential diagnosis. And I'll show you a few where there can be some gaps around here, especially in non plaque or non obvious psoriasis. Com- com- comfort with topicals and combination therapies, you've been hearing about all morning. We'll talk about that a little bit. Comparative effectiveness data, we got a you know, beautiful talk from uh, Bruce about that this morning, but really staying up to date with that so we understand what. Uh, what we might be choosing, or what we might be discussing with our patient who still has uh, a sufficient amount of skin disease. Uh, drug-induced eruptions, I won't have a lot of time to talk about them. I'm happy to chat with folks offline about that, or you know, come back uh, next year and chat about this. It's, a, it's its own topic, and it's really fascinating to think about anti-TNF-induced psoriasis and other eruptions we're now seeing with some of our agents, IL-17-induced or exacerbated, atopic and eczematous dermatitis, and, and other things that are really interesting. Um, Appreciation of burden of disease, again, that skin matters. And then thinking about um, examining our patients with these other at-risk skin phenotypes, namely inverse (coughs) endotriginous disease, nail disease, and other things. I'll show you those in a moment. So this is just a, a representative sampling of one of the things that I see. Now, depending on whether I'm sitting in the dermatology office or in the rheumatology office, I get a little bit of a different flavor here of what's coming across, and I will often have colleagues say to me, "You know, boy, I have this patient with psoriatic arthritis. I've started them on a, you know, on an anti-TNF. I'm waiting for it to kick in, and boy, their psoriasis just isn't clearing." And you know, and unfortunately, the, these are these are examples of numular dermatitis, of eczematous dermatitis, contact dermatitis, you know. And this is where some of the educational gaps in the co-management collaboration come in, because. It's not psoriasis, right? And, and sometimes it can be a little bit tricky. It's not always clear cut. Uh, and so I think, you know, getting more comfortable with this ourselves in terms of, you know, uh, just education and awareness and, uh, and otherwise just having a partner in this uh, is, is another uh, point we'll talk about. And I really like this. We've done some work on this over the years. And um, <clears throat> I had a publication a couple of years ago that showed that inverse psoriasis was common, in fact, in upwards of 20, 25% of patients had inverse, some element of inverse or intertrigenous psoriasis in body folds. What's interesting about this is what you know, what I found is we have a good number of patients who present with sort of a seronegative inflammatory arthritis, and you know they, they don't get a specific label. And in fact, if you get them undressed, if you look at some of these areas, I think it really helps us get to a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis, looking in the gluteal cleft, looking in body folds, uh, you know, uh, axilla, uh, and other areas. And so something to think about. Uh, and, and in fact, this phenotype is associated with increased risk of psoriatic arthritis. Treat to target. Can cover your ears. Um, I just point this out for the rheumatologist for awareness. I think he, he and I are more aligned than not, that not everyone needs to be below 1% body surface area. I think it's a shared decision-making point. However, if you're seeing a patient where you're giving yourself a high five in the office because you have fixed their joints, but they still have substantial skin disease, you know, I think it is our job to offer them, uh, either ourselves, uh, a therapeutic intervention for that or to talk about you know referring appropriately. And we'll talk a little bit about those um, uh, overlap care models uh, in a moment. So <clears throat> this is a scenario that's come up a few times. Uh, so the patient with well-controlled PSA, say on the TNF, but they have active areas of skin disease. To me, this is not a minor piece of the rheumatology practice around psoriatic arthritis. So let's unpack a few of those gaps again. So, okay, patient's not clear. Treat to target would suggest they should be less than 1% body surface or at least we're gonna have a discussion to say, well, how clear do you wanna be? Um, perhaps that means some topicals. And you know, for some of my colleagues, I repeatedly get, and from the same people, the same question, well, which topicals should I use, right? We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, and you heard about those limitations today. Uh, and one of the big limitations is area, right? Is it genital, inverse, face, scalp, et cetera, based on vehicle, based on potency, and that may become easier in a moment. Ken alluded to this a little while ago familiarity with relative efficacy data. You're all experts now after this morning's talk. So that's no longer an issue. Uh, consider other combination therapy approaches and then thinking about co-management. But often I hear, but there's a long wait time for the dermatologist or it's challenging to connect with them. So we'll talk about that as well. What, you know, where we can bridge some of those gaps. So what are the solutions for the rheumatologist? Pick a couple of. You know topical steroids you feel comfortable with, and just keep using those, right? And, and understand that they're, uh, what the couple of differences are. You could probably get away with two or three and do a, a whole lot of good with that. However, there are new steroid, uh, non-steroid topicals coming. Ken alluded to this, to Pineroff or flumilast, some topical jacks, and other things. You know that may be one size fits all. Of course, it's going to be price and access like everything else. But wouldn't that be nice if you could just say, well, you know, you have a few stubborn spots, your joints are doing well here's a prescription for X and try that while they're either waiting to get into the dermatologist or You know, or maybe they don't even need the dermatologist at that point. That's fine. Uh, Combination therapy was already covered, and we'll talk about the co-management piece. I'm not going to cover derm gaps. I'll come back to this, but just to say, each specialist in this, you know, in this uh, arena has their own gaps. Uh, For dermatologists, um, there it's mostly around uh, familiarity and comfort with the musculoskeletal history exam, screening around PSA and other things. I won't, I won't, I'll spare you all here. It is highlighted though by, and as a segue to our discussion about um, uh, care models, uh, the Grappa Group, um, <clears throat> of which I am a, uh, a, a, a huge fan and long-term member, I think Philip now 12 years or something like that, believe it or not. Um, <clears throat> uh, it f- feels like a, a, a family to me at this point. Uh, did this work um, a few years back and they actually had a group from KPMG uh, the auditing group uh, who, and, uh, and consultant group, who came in and took a look at where are the gaps uh, in, uh, in patient care around this. I'm gonna highlight a few as it's relevant to this, this discussion about care models. But they said that we needed to develop referral pathways and or informal networks in order to really optimize care. And we needed to, to promote collaborative care between specialties to establish multidisciplinary uh, teams wherever possible. And when you pay that much to a consulting group, You know, you have to listen to them, right? So... I still don't know what consulting is, but anyway, that's fine, let's just keep going. So combined clinics and facilitated collaborative care. So uh, you know, look, here's a list of all the sort of comorbidities and the things that we're supposed to be doing to get our psoriatic patients sort of buffed and optimized, right? We should be measuring their BMI, uh, talking about managing their you know, modifiable risk factors, talking about alcohol and sleep, uh, treatment satisfaction, PSA and skin, treat to target lipids. Di- now, so here's the deal. <clears throat> We do have to do all of these things for the patient. Now, when you say this to a rheumatologist, you know, I think yeah, they, they get it. Uh, and they also would say, you know, it's a little bit like asking my kids to clean up their room, put stuff in the hamper, right? They can do it. It's gonna, yeah, right, all right, fine. You ask a dermatologist to do this, it's a little bit like asking a dog to write a haiku, right? It's not necessarily gonna happen. Uh, so so there, there are ways around this, right? And so I think at the, at the bare minimum, it, it takes a team, right? And so I think it's very fair to say that the dermatologist, you own the psoriasis treatment, you have to screen for comorbidities, namely PSA, and then just help the patient build their team, right? And we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. Make sure they're in, you know plugged in with their PCP. You know, where we are, we have these preventative cardiology clinics now for rheumatology diseases. It's wonderful. I have a colleague who really wants these patients and, and is gonna talk about modifiable risk factors, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So just getting them plugged in and making sure they're plugged in with the folks that are gonna get all these things done, if not owning piece of it, pieces of it ourselves. and we'll talk about that. True combined clinics. so this is great, right? Uh, and, and it's a little bit, um, Uh, It's a bit of an ivy tower construct in some respects. Where it can happen, I think it's wonderful, but there are other models as well. There is data that these truly combined clinics where you have a derm and a room together in the same place at the same time do improve uh, outcomes. This is one publication that showed that combined clinic care uh, uh, in those combined settings that forty six percent of cases had a revised diagnosis, uh, and they were much more likely to be treated appropriately with a systemic or biologic therapy than before, maybe not surprisingly, but I think that that 's interesting. Uh, this is a, a little snapshot of our own combined clinic at the Brigham where we have a dermatologist, a rheumatologist, a derm room person myself, room fellows, derm residents we have a derm room fellowship for one year where either a dermatologist or a rheumatologist comes through and cross trains for the year um, <clears throat> So it's great. It's a great education model. The patients love it. One-stop shopping. They only par- pay for parking once. Uh, right? That's They're thrilled. Uh, if we run late, they get a you know, we, we we validate their parking. They're, right, they're even happier. So anyway, so and then uh, of course it's you know it's a very rich environment for research as well, which I'll cover uh, in a moment, and I hope moves the helps to move the field forward to some degree. So this is great, and it's wonderful. It's not practical everywhere. I'm well aware of that. Okay, and so what what do the different collaborative care models look like? So there's these formal combined ones, and over throughout uh, different places in the country, we are aware of multiple different models. If you if you have one, we'd love to hear about it some that are in person every week, like ours, some that are monthly, et cetera, et cetera. Some are in tandem, but they're not on the same day. Some now are actually virtual. They have sort of virtual grand rounds, couple groups get together, they share their complicated cases, they talk about it, great. Uh, but some of the more practical ones are, are just connecting with someone in your community who is a, you know, let's say on the derm side, who is, who is not a cosmetic dermatologist. We're not recording this, right? That's a joke, yeah not a cosmetic dermatologist, someone who writes systemic agents for patients who need them, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and just finding that person and, and, and linking with them, right? Whether it's texting, phone a buddy, I will say one, if there's anything good that came out of COVID, facilitating these, you know, discussions where, you know, where HIPAA went out the window and we were texting each other for a little bit about patients and such, That was helpful. Uh, Communicate via electronic medical record. I'll come back to that. Sharing note templates is something, uh, and I'll share it with you, a website where you can get some of those note templates with what the other party wants collected to understand why you're making the decisions that you're deciding on. Um, And then really the key is just facilitated communication. And we have a few groups who have actually even agreed to hold a few templated slots for referrals that revert maybe a week or two before. They have one slot in their week for psoriatic arthritis referral from from ble- or psoriasis referral and they just keep it open so that you can get people in in a, in a relatively uh, quick time frame and, and all of these things um can be helpful and i'll show you i'll share with you some resources to look at this so uh...
0: okay thanks joe marola that was really great um, really, three very interesting speakers. If you like those talks, you might want to go back and view them in their entirety. Uh, I, I enjoyed this session. This session had a ton of questions uh, from the audience, um, and we almost <laughs> we had to we actually went over on time because of the so many questions that we had. If you have any questions uh, that you'd like to discuss here, the best place uh, to do that is to use the um, the Q and A box, if you will, um, and we can address those here uh, right now. I have some questions from the meeting that were asked. Um, one of the a few, a few people asked, uh, "How do I build my own um, referral network or my own dermatology consultancy, if you will?" and um, and that was generally an issue for those of you who practice in more rural environments. Where there isn't a dermatologist in your town, and patients are going to have to follow, uh, uh, or, or, or if they're to see a dermatologist, they to have to travel to do so. So, what was the recommendation on how to best management manage this? And there are several. One is, as Joe Marola spoke in that second to last slide, that you adopt one of those models, and that can be, you know, Zoom meetings uh, with uh, the your derm colleague. You need to find a derm colleague that you can have a relationship in Dallas. I've got a relationship with uh, two or three medical dermatologists who are really interested in psoriasis management, for instance, lupus management. And we begin most of our, you know, I need a, an opinion. I need a consultation with the cell phone. You know, we're texting each other. We're saying, I got a patient here. Can you see them in the next hour? They live out of town or I take a picture. What do you think of this? And once you develop that relationship, that's the beginning of collaborative care. Uh, Obviously, you're going to hand that patient off, but but the cell phone, I find to be a tremendous tool in facilitating uh, cooperative care. Uh, The uh, second thing you can do is there, I think, in this era of telemedicine uh, and people getting familiar with Zoom, um, we're going to get into more peer-to-peer consultation and using telemedicine for that. I don't know if you've ever referred a patient to the Mayo Clinic or to the Cleveland Clinic, but you can get a peer-to-peer consult on a tough case um, and the patient won't have to go to um, to Cleveland or to um, uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And sometimes it can just be you and the expert, like um, Carol Langford or, or Lenny uh, Calabrese or whatever. I think that's going to be better um, um, managed in the future, meaning that there'll be a way uh, of getting that reimbursed and, and charged to the patient's um, insurance because it's going to benefit the patient. Um, but these are a few things that can be worked out, especially if you're very remote. I want to underscore something that Marola said that I thought was really important. I missed the first time around. I just heard now and that was the patient needs a team with psoriatic disease the patient needs a team and you know you are one member of the team and the question did come up several times can the dermatologist manage everything can the rheumatologist manage everything and the answer is yes but would you do that with primary care issues and comorbidity issues the answer is generally no i want my patient to see the generalist, the family doctor, so that they'll do the, you know, not just the COVID stuff, but the coronary stuff and the diabetes stuff and the vaccinations that need to be done, etc. Um, and and you, you don't have to do it, right? So the same can be said about psoriasis care that I think a, a team approach might be the smart way to go. Um, a question was asked about the um, uh, the TIC2 inhibitor it was a lot, uh, you are about ducravicitinib, uh, including a positive trial in lupus, some positive trials in psoriatic disease as well. Um, will it be considered, uh, and have, uh, as a JAK inhibitor, will it have the same warnings. Um, we don't have an approval on Ducravacitinib right now. And, um, and we're waiting on that. But if you look at the clinical trial results, whether they're done in dermatology, like that poet study, ducravositinib head to head against a pramlast, or in um, in PSA, um, all the safety signals are reading out just as they would if this was a JAK inhibitor, and it is a member of the JAK family with some differences, as pointed out by Dr. Strober. So I fully expect that the boxed warnings that currently exist for baricitinib, lopaticitinib, and tofacitinib are going to be carried over to other jack and TIC inhibitors as they enter the marketplace, maybe not even in rheumatology, maybe just in, for instance, atopic dermatitis or alopecia areata. And again, the same thing here with um, uh, What do you do? What, what's the story with jack inhibitors in psoriasis? Um, and, you know, the jack inhibitors are going to be approved in psoriasis, and also approved in psoriatic arthritis, but make no mistake: the JAK inhibitors are better at arthritis than they are at skin disease. You know, uh, and that's the equation: dominant arthritis or dominant skin disease. Dominant skin disease, you're looking at an IL-17, the dual IL-17, IL-23, the 1223s. That's dominant skin responses with that. But if it's dominant arthritis, you're looking at a TNF inhibitor and a JAK inhibitor. Um, and getting good responses with using a 17 or a 23. But I think that this is a, that it's an important decision. Is it more skin or more joint? Is it going to be the dermatologist, the rheumatologist, and which drugs you're going to use? I don't think it's that hard in the end. Um, one question that was asked, um, and I don't have a great answer for it, except I'll quote one of the speakers. And the question was, for all the different types of psoriasis, there's, is there one drug that responds the best to any one type of psoriasis, and uh, and that includes not only psoriasis but um, psoriatic arthritis and you know dactylitis enthesitis. I think that they're all kind of the same. We talked about the you know 1723s versus Jack and TNF. But I what I heard from Ken Gordon and also from Strober was that in clinical trials right now it looks like the Jack inhibitors look may have an advantage in the very difficult to treat palm variants of psoriasis. And that's sort of unique, right? We said we said that Jacqueline humerus generally don't work as well in the skin disease, not compared to the IL-17 and 23s, but maybe in palmo disease. So that's something to look forward to in the future. A um, question was, uh, uh, I got a patient on Humira for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis is doing great for over 10 years. Should I switch? Um, And my answer is no. If someone's doing great, you don't mess with it. There is no real long-term toxicity issue with the TNF inhibitors. Again, when most of the TNF inhibitors toxicities, whether it's, you know, a malignancy event, a TB event, infectious event, most of that's front-loaded, right? First six, six months, maybe 12 months, someone's on it 10 years, you're not going to get anything new. And if you do, it's not, it's not going to be related to the drug. So my answer is no, you don't never you don't ever stop a drug that's working really well. And this question was about, should I switch to maybe a safer drug like the IL-17 inhibitors? And the facts are that the IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors are safer because they've been largely approved and tested in psoriasis, where the signals for all the bad stuff, cancer, infection, etc., is less than you see in RA and Crohn's disease. That's why it looks safer. It's not really that it's safer. It's just that the patients it's tested in don't have as much in the way of those serious toxicities. Um, anyway, that's it. Any? Let me see if there's any more questions here um, in the question board. I don't see any. Uh, I want to remind all of you that um, we are um, not going to do Tuesday night rheumatology next week. We're going to take a break for the summer. We'll start up... Uh, Tuesday Night Rheumatology in um, in September. Uh, I want to uh, make a correction. This this particular session and pod was sponsored by Novartis and not by Janssen. Thanks to Janssen, they had did sponsor two other things during Room Now Live, as did Novartis. And again, we're very thankful for Novartis' support of Room Now Live. Um, and lastly, I want to point out to you that we've got a lot of content this last week from EULAR. I mean, just a tremendous amount. I think we we recorded over 75 videos. Um, uh, I think we had a 1,000 tweets. I mean, just really incredible. Watch the videos. I think in the next few days, you're going to see a panel discussion on lupus highlights from ULAR 2022. And then early next week, an RA panel discussion. You might want to look at those. I thought those were really well done. Um, and I got to sit in on them and moderate them. That's why I, I'm recommending those to you. So, And then lastly, this week uh, on our weekly podcast, we'll be doing a roundup of what I think were the top um, presentations and takeaways from ur 22. Folks, thanks very much for tuning in and uh, follow us on Room Now.